0: all right we are live on facebook hello and welcome friends we are honored to be here today on the weekly show by filmmaker tracy shot creator of Finding Jen's Voice, a powerful documentary that shines a light on intimate partner violence. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV, here today with our co-host, Kelsey McKay, who is a prosecutor in Austin, Texas, who specializes in strangulation, and she'll talk more about that. And we're going to be interviewing Laverne Gordon, founder of the Love Life Now Foundation, an organization based near Boston, Mass., which promotes year-round awareness against domestic violence and bridges the gap between the shelters where women and their kids go for a safe space and what they do next. Laverne is also the author of a new powerful book out in June, I believe, called The Legacy He Lifts He Left Me, The Legacy He Left Me, an extension of her organization's work. And it chronicles her personal story as a child witness an adult survivor of domestic abuse, and how she is thriving now. So I am going to throw this over to Ms. Tracy Schott to take it away. Thanks, Hope. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. So we started Voices
1: for Change for um, with two main m- missions. Um, one was to bring information uh, to people about intimate partner violence that that was easily accessible. There's a lot known, a lot of research done, and it tends to get locked in ivory towers. So my goal was to bring that information to anybody who needed it. Um, My my second goal, maybe my primary goal, was to amplify amplify the voices of uh, survivors of intimate partner violence because their experiences really inform us so much um even uh more so than than the research so um too often i feel like voices of survivors of intimate partner violence get drowned out by the voices of so many others and it was important to me to really um, honor their experience so to that end i'm extremely honored to have uh, Laverne Gordon with us today and um, Laverne your, um, your book, your website, your experience and your efforts to um, really change the world um, align very much with, with our missions um, with Hope and Kelsey. So we're really, really glad to welcome a kindred spirit here. Um, so let's start with talking about your book. Um, It's pretty exciting, the legacy he left me. And so that details both your experiences as a child growing up in an abusive household, but also your own relationship.
2: Tell us your story. Yeah. So um, first of all, thank you for having me. And um, I am so honored to be able to be even writing a book, right? So a lot of people go through this issue and come out on the other end and they're literally just seeking to survive. And so the hope through our organization, Love Life Now, as you mentioned, is to, you know, let folks know that there is life after abuse, but not just life, but that you can thrive, right? And um, the book is now going to be an extension of the awareness work that we do. Um, And so it's just a privilege uh, to be able to to do that. So, as you mentioned, I'm a child witness of the issue growing up in Trinidad. Um, it's the island just before Venezuela going down that way. And for many years, uh, the extent of my 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 life on the island, I witnessed domestic violence in our home growing up. And it was a really hard thing because as a child, watching your mother go through this, it was uh, completely, it completely left me feeling helpless. I was one of Five, uh, four, five children, um, the middle child, and our two older siblings also suffered the brunt of the child abuse. He didn't really hold back on, you know, really beating them for simple little things in a really rash, rash way. Um, so in an effort, by the time I came along seven years later, after my my, my, my oldest brother I realized I wanted none of it. I didn't want to get beaten the way that they were getting beaten. Um, and I, you know, I heard from my mom, but I also felt angry from my mom um, because she was getting the, the full on physical attacks as well as verbal and emotional assaults. And I, you know, I just really tried to do everything to stay on his good side. He was well-read. He was articulate. He was charming. Um, he was the one that had the, you know, the degree and the education and she at, the t- she at the time, right, no, no more, no more of that, she at the time was uneducated and financially dependent on him. And I looked upon that as weak. I thought at the time that, you know, she, first of all, she could do better. I always resented the fact that she didn't leave. Um, and why sometimes when she took us and ran, why she didn't stay gone. And, um, I, I grew up thinking, you know, by the time I was 14, 13, 14, I said, you know, if anything, I, I I don't want to be her. I want to be him. I want to, I want to be smart. I want to be, um, educated. I want to, you know, not be, I want to be financially independent because I believed in what he was showing me was that this power and control that he had not over, not just her, but our us as children, I wanted that. I wanted that in some sense. Um, And so I sought to be smart. I sought to do, and obviously I was doing it as well to stay on his good side, because that's what he sort of required of his children is that he wanted them to to be good. Um, and anything straying outside of that resulted in beatings. And as I said, I did everything to stay on his good side. And so by the time I was 15, he allowed me to migrate to the States, leaving my siblings and my, you know, them behind um, to, to start high school. He believed that I had a really great shot of doing well in the States and you know, he was right. I I came here and I you know I lived with my grandparents for for three years while I finished high school and then had to migrate back to, the, to to Trinidad to get our permanent residency at the time. Well, by that time I'm 18 and my my younger siblings and I were now growing up and we're not standing for him to put his hands on our mother and we're saying you know listen you can you can you can verbally say what you want but don't ever touch her again. And um, he adhered to that. And so over the next couple of years, while we were waiting for this permanent residency at the time to come through, um, he realized that he was losing that power and control that he had exuded over her for so many years, that that was dwindling because we were stepping in between. And so by the time, you know, 1998 rolled around, he he let her go and, and he let her migrate to the States with myself um, now and my two younger siblings. And we, we, we left. And, and came here and I was two years behind my, my peers and had to start college right away. And so I did, I went, started Suffolk University at nights, went to high, you know, you know, started an entry-level job in corporate America and, you know, things were going well. I was saying to myself at that time, you know, I now am closer to who I thought my father was in control and, you know, powerful in my own sense and nobody would ever, you know, come to me that way, right? So, cause I knew it all fortunately children that grow up in abusive homes tend to go on to become either victims or um, abusers and i was no exception i was the only one out of the five children that became a victim and so we all lived in the same house we all witnessed the same thing um uh, but i i took away from what i saw um, being a victim and so that came about while i was you know against going to school, uh, working. And this guy approached me and 10 years, my senior didn't, didn't matter. He didn't look it and we started dating and things were great. And about three months into the relationship, uh, he slapped me the first time um, over me, not, you know, checking in with him uh, one particular morning. And he was so irate and so infuriated and so paranoid that I had not done that because I was cheating on him. And the more I tried to appease him, that did nothing. Um, and it and that conversation, as I said, ended with a slap and he stormed off like nothing had happened. Um, and so I'm left there trying to figure out what I did to, to cause this, um, but then catching myself and saying, no, I did nothing. I told the truth um, and I'm done. I'm through. Uh, unfortunately, he came back to my doorstep while I wasn't home and... A bunch of apologies, voicemails. Um, I'm sorry. Please call me. I'm worried. You're not picking up my calls. I don't know what I did. I, I, you know, if, if, if I, if I overreacted, I just want to talk to you. I want to explain. And I, I let him have the floor. And when he, he did call back and I, you know, I took the call um, it was because I ended up accepting that apology in my mind. At the time, people often ask, how do people fall into these types of relationships? And right there and then I had started to question my reaction to what he had done because he was now telling me in this apology that I made him do it. If you had called me, I probably wouldn't have acted that way. Um, I love you so much that you make me do these things. And I, again, questioned myself and said, you know what, Laverne, maybe maybe you could have called Right. And so this was this was typical of us to check in with, you, with each other, him more so than I. Um, and this was one of the big red flags that I had missed in the beginning because we were always he would always call me 24 seven, even in, you know, before I got to work uh, three or four times at least. And I realized later that that was to, 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 to make sure I said I, where I was is where I was. Um, and so I accepted that apology, not realizing that he had manipulated the situation. Um, I did equate it to my mother's uh, history with the issue. I said, you know, it's not as bad. It, it was just a slap. Um, he did say he was sorry. He did say he was not going to do it again. He does love me. Um, he did go to elaborate lengths to apologize. And so, we, you know, victims take into all of that into the equation when that apology comes. It's like you're almost, you know, sort of making excuses as to why it isn't that bad. Um, and, and that unfortunately started the cycle of two years of abuse. So the book itself, um, I don't want to give too much away, but the book itself really chronicles what, you know, being a child witness is and how that looks to, you know, children and how helpless they feel and the things that they can do versus the things they can do. Um, what it's like to fall into these types of relationships. What happens over the course of the relationship that you may, may now be encountering, um, but not telling yourself that it's that bad, it's not that bad. So um, it, it sort of gives all of the, you know, the red flags, but it also gives what leaving looks like and what that looked like for me. And so I give a really firsthand point of view as to what safety planning can be because I, I missed the mark on that. Um, and it, it put my life in danger. I mean, it was to the point where two years later, when I decided that I got to my breaking point and told him that I was through, That he then showed up at my door um, trying to break into my apartment, but not before he cut the phone lines in the basement, um, making sure or trying to make sure that I would have no access to the outside world. Um, I finally called police that day and he spent, you know, he ran away. Um, and even at that time, you know, I still didn't want him to get in trouble. I just wanted the abuse to stop. So I talk about, you know, what the sort of the, the, what the weight on the shoulders of victims are, um, when they decide to leave and that leaving is the most dangerous time for them. Um, how dangerous it could be, you know, and it's not just as easy as why don't you just leave. Right. I'm really hoping that when people read this book, they, even if you've never this issue insight as to what this issue looks like for victims and survivors alike. Um, and even if, and if you, you have encountered the issue that you can see life after isn't supposed to be all humming from nothing that you did was your fault even though they've told you that a thousand times you do you, you cannot blame yourself um and, and and you know i talk about self-care what that looks like and picking yourself up and trying to to do the best that you can with what you have um to to really try and mend the pieces and mend the pieces we must as as survivors right because all of the weight again is put on our shoulders. All the onus responsibility is put on us to pick up the pieces and move on and get your credit right because they messed you up financially, to, to keep yourself safe after you've left and you said you're done, to you know, get the you know, PTSD and emotional and mental health. I mean, all of this stuff is left on us. And so, you know, the work that we do through Love Life Now, as, as a matter of fact, our post this morning on social media is um an ad where men are saying we need to be accountable for other men right um it should not be on the victim to get themselves safe it should be why are people or men or, vict- or men, women or whoever the perpetrator is why are they doing this
1: well i'm really looking forward to seeing the book come out it sounds like um it's you know the personal experience is so important for people to understand but it it also sounds like you've got it's, it's more than just this is what happened to me. It's it's this is what how how you can learn from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, I know Kelsey had some questions. Yeah,
3: Laverne, You brought up uh, quite a few really interesting points. So coming from someone who is a practitioner in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Who, years and now of course i'm on the outside of that i'm um, in in both environments worked with survivors but you brought up so many i think incredible points and um, when it comes to domestic violence is not just an incident right it's an experience and in your case it's not just an experience with one relationship it's the development mm-hmm child, um, growing up into an adult and doing everything you could to avoid it. And a lot of the behaviors you mentioned, the minimizing, the going back, reengaging with the abuser, these are all things that make sense when we hear you tell the story. But I know in the criminal justice system, victims' behavior gets so judged, even though it's coming from a place of surviving. Um, And so I'm curious if you had any interaction either as a child um, or you just mentioned in your account as an adult that the criminal justice system got involved. Talk to us about what that experience was like and if you experienced any of those judgments from the individual acts, um, I guess, that, that you portrayed that they misunderstood
2: yeah and so great question um because (laughs) it's so different for so many people um and I'll, i'll i'll sort of go back and talk about my mother right and so again this is this is i was born in 77 i'm giving away my age no problem um and but you know i really knew myself in the 80s and i can tell you in the 80s in a third world country on an island domestic violence wasn't even a term that was coined yet so when the police if the police were called by maybe a concerned neighbor, which was very rare, if the police were called and they showed up, they often deferred to our father, right? So he was the first point of contact that they made. So Mr. Augustine, what's going on here? And it was like, okay, I'm I'm looking at the dynamic. And again, seven, eight years old, I'm trying to figure out why aren't you talking to her? Like, even, even then it was like so frustrating why you didn't just come and arrest this? Man, our father, right? Who I loved. I had this love hate relationship with. And so police would show up, and it's like, you know, well, after hearing from the smart, articulate person, right? Not the weak, you know, what you consider weak or what you're telling him, listen, this is a husband and wife thing. You guys patch that up and don't let us have to come back here anymore. And then they're gone. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought the police, from what I saw on TV, right? They're supposed to come and protect you. They're supposed to take care of the bad guy and take him away. And that never happened. So that hope was always depleted whenever, you know, again, very rarely that it happened. And then you fast forward to me where the the onus to call the police, when I finally felt like my back was against the wall, this person is banging on my apartment door, trying to bust it down. And I knew, you know, he kept saying, I want to talk to you. We need to talk. What you said doesn't make any sense. Did you pick up with another guy? And you're hearing this, this, this level of anger in this person's voice, and you know that they're intent on harming you further than what's already happened. My God, what else is there to do? So you pick up the phone, you call the police, and what did I do? I still didn't give him up because at the time um, and leading up to that incident, for many years in the Black community, I had heard you don't called the cops on a Black man, they already have it bad enough in society. Um, You don't want to be the responsible party for putting another Black man in jail in the pipeline for something as minor as this. I mean, he just slapped you around some, right? It's not that bad, right? It's the same thing that I had told myself throughout the relationship. What's happening is not that bad I kept comparing it to what my mom went through. And so, you know, you have this sort of this thing on your shoulder that you're carrying. And it's like, when they come, well, are they gonna arrest him? You're thinking about, you know, if he has children, are they gonna put him in jail? Now you're responsible for their children not getting fed. Like all of these things that sort of pop up. And so, like I said, I called the police, but that didn't stop him, right? I didn't give his name up because I wanted to protect him. Um, And so they left and they said that they couldn't do anything because I wasn't willing to be truthful with them.
3: And you bring up a really good point about the role of race and how it plays. We know that there's a disproportionate impact um, of domestic violence and homicides uh, for women of color. And so I wanna talk to you about, you certainly recognize a very important point, which is concerns if the abuser is a black man and contributing to that and how that acts as a barrier um, to survivors. I'd love to ask a little bit about when she came to America, you were a professional woman, what role did being a, a black woman play to create any additional obstacles or concerns or dynamics in your either ability to leave the relationship, at, you know, at work.
2: Or speak up.
3: Or speak up about it yeah. like a little bit um, about the, the role of race for you and what added obstacles it added to it.
2: Very good question. And so, um, you know, one of my safe rescues. so at this point, you know, throughout the course of this relationship, I became more and more isolated from family and friends. Um, there was, I was no longer the social butterfly to go out, hang with friends like I would normally do, pick up the phone and have free conversations I would as I would before because he was monitoring all my calls. Um, and then even if he wasn't in my presence, he would check my call logs. So going to work was a refuge. Um, there was, I was there eight hours a day, um, and it was where I could be myself, unless he showed up to the job unexpectedly and accosted me for the type of dress I was wearing it was too short or the underwear was too flimsy and what are you trying to do pick up another guy in the office are you trying to flirt with guys when you could walk to lunch what is this so you know a strangle strangulation would happen downstairs or you know a slap around you know pushed, you know getting pushed around it and it's like you then have to get yourself back up together because you're at work and you go to- to the bathroom you dry your face off and you go back to your desk like nothing had happened and I did that in part because I didn't want anybody at work finding out because a couple things I was one of two black women in the office in a predominantly white space and the stereotype that once again when I come to America I understood was black women bring drama and I didn't want to be associated with that stereotype. Um, And I thought to myself that if anybody had found out, you know, my boss or any of my colleagues had found out that this was happening to me, that they would connect me with that stereotype. I wanted none of that. Um, So I did my best to, and I also thought that I would be fired. Let's, let's just start there. Um, They would understand why I maybe miss days sometimes. Maybe I had like a bruise that I didn't want to be seen. He never really slapped me on my face um, after um, the first attack, you know, it was more like slapping around with the body and all this sorts of stuff. But, um, you know, there were some days that I just couldn't do, I physically couldn't do it. Um, and they would now understand why that was. And so I, I wanted nobody to know because I didn't want, I didn't want to get fired and I did not want anybody shaming me or blaming me for the abuse. So come to the end of the relationship and sitting in the hospital room where the doctor is telling me, you know, the first time I'm seeking injuries for, for for an attack, which started for the last attack went from nine o'clock the night before till about two o'clock the next morning, um, and I'm sitting there, and the doctor's saying, I can get you help because these injuries aren't consistent with you falling in the shower, and that meaning to me that again, my job can find out my my school where I'm a freshman, they're gonna finally know why I'm flunking all my classes. I am on my way to receiving an F at my dream school that I have, I thought about going for so many years. They would now understand that. I'd be shamed. Um, my family would finally find out and they'd say, why would you let yourself go through this knowing the history that your mother has with this issue? I just thought that people were going to look at me different. And again, the whole idea of encountering Police and getting them involved and the the, the the ramifications that that could potentially have. Would they show up and kill him? Would they, would they arrest him and anything to do with his family? Oh, it was just too much. And then subsequently, that didn't stop him, as I said, um, the police showing up because I didn't give his name. And he waited for to see if any heat was coming his way and none did. So he then started stalking me. He knew he physically couldn't come at me. So he started leaving derogatory notes on my car. And that forced me then to finally get a restraining order because this level of crazy was just heightening and heightening. And I'm saying to myself, my, my God, if he can approach my car and put these type of notes on it in like wee hours of the morning, who am I to think, not think that when I come out at one point in the morning, that he's going to have a knife a gun and shoot me dead where I stand with nobody to to, to be a witness.
3: You've brought up so many different lethality indicators. And I'm curious if you, you mentioned safety planning that, and that that's an area that you didn't feel like you had adequate knowledge about before you left. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned so many lethality indicators, you know, and we all know that stalking is very common leading up to a homicide as well as strangulation and separation. And when you called to report those stalking incidences, which again, tend to get looked at as an incident, what's, what's the big deal that someone left a note on your window?
0: Exactly. Did
3: you believe police responded to that any differently? Did they seem to understand it?
2: So I, I, I skipped the police that time um, and I went straight to the courthouse um, without any knowledge of how to do it, right? Um, I said I was, because I re- I, this was, the, to me, if I went to court and finally now I was at the point where I didn't care about being a black cat woman and, you know, putting another man in jail, it. it was like, now I'm saying to myself, my God, I'm going to, I'm going to die at some point if I let this keep going. Right. Um, and so I went to the courthouse, entered, went to the clerk's office. I was told I'm looking to file a restraining order. They said, go to the clerk's office. I go to the clerk's office. I'll never forget. And the woman at the counter said, um, okay, fill this out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, and she said, oh, she said on the back here, you're going to want to detail what it is you've experienced and why you need the restraining order. So my 23 year old self, right, is now in the courthouse and I'm filling out this affidavit, all the, you know, the front end stuff is pretty self-explanatory. And then they tell you, um, explain yourself. And I'm like, oh my God, how do I sound as articulate as possible so that these people take me seriously without giving too much? And so I proceeded to write my affidavit and explain that this person was stalking me, that, that he was um, showing up at, at random times, leaving these type of notes. And I explained in detail what he said. Um, and I'm thinking when I'm done with that, that that's the, that's the, that's the shame that I have to do. I'm to myself when they take this back like, because i don't know they're going to take this back in the office and they're going to read it whoever's reading this is going to be like this girl is stupid like why would she stay with this guy and this guy and that's what i'm thinking right and so i'm like okay that that amount of shame i'm done with only to be told that you have to come back to go before a judge and your abuser has the right to come (laughs) and give his argument too and I freaked out, Kelsey, because now I'm thinking, my God, I got to face this guy, right? Um, it wasn't explained to me that that's what it was. And so again, if you don't know, you don't know. And so safety planning, which is one of the big things that we talk about through the Awareness Work of Love Life now, is that it's so, so important because getting connected with an agency, a domestic violence agency, where they offer safety planning, that they can, a victims right Vi- a, vi- a victim advocate can be with you in court to walk you through that process to ha- explain to you that this is what is coming is coming next yeah.
0: um people- there are some
2: people that don't have you know the language skill to explain themselves on paper um there's some people that don't uh, even speak the language. There's some people that don't understand the nuances of court, right? There's some people that leave, all right, and and leave with the clothes on their backs and have to show up at court with what they're wearing, and it may not be court appropriate. How are those people being treated? Well, not so great, from what I've from what I've learned over the years. And sometimes it's a deterrent for women of color um, that have to face judges that. Um, and I'm just that's just keeping it real. And Kelsey, you can probably speak to that. Um, mm-hmm.
3: What you've really highlighted is not just with race, but with this type of gender based violence is how inequitable the criminal justice or the criminal legal system is in the treatment overall defendants and victims, you know, defendants have the right to an attorney, they have constitutional rights outlined, whereas survivors don't get that. And so just like you, many of them walk into a room to get a protective or restraining order and don't even know what it is they're supposed to write. So the role of victim advocates in holding the hands and guiding and providing not only support, but understanding and translating what's happening in the system and yeah. what to expect is so incredibly important and really not a topic I think we address enough. enough. Um, so many survivors just drop out of the system because they don't have that support and then frankly get blamed for not cooperating.
2: And then you you wonder why victims go back, why victims in that time where they're trying to survive and stay alive, that then they're, they're, again, repeatedly hearing from their abuser, who's calling them and saying, look, if you go through with this, I'm going to kill you. If you go through with this, I'm going to kill the kids. If you go through with this, there's all these ramifications. How many times do you hear from the news? I think, Tracy, you said, this is not a news story. This is not a magazine story that you see for a minute. And and that's it there's a before where things have been building up beforehand there's the, the the incident right murder abuse whatever someone being harmed and then there's an after where people are picking up pieces and so how often do you hear that she was getting ready to leave and take the kids and he killed her yeah oh it's he, very he was getting ready to leave and she snapped like this this th- this is what's happening it's real life and it's because of these certain types of things maybe it's because they called for help and help wasn't available maybe they got to the courthouse and they didn't get the adequate resources there maybe it's because you know again throughout all of that you know maybe they're in shelter and the abuser is still calling them and saying i've changed look i'll go to counseling i'll go to church with you i'll I'll talk to the pastor i'll I'll, you know i'll I'll be better i won't do it again all throughout that process they're having to take the responsibility of keeping this person away from them, just so they can live, just so they can survive, and it's insane to me.
1: Yeah, it, you know, it's I I always say it's it, it, the most insane part of uh, the whole criminal justice system around uh, intimate partner violence is how much pressure and responsibility is put on victims to ensure that justice is done, and you know, I mean if. If uh, somebody goes in and robs a convenience store, um, they, they don't hold the uh, person behind the counter, you know, responsible for whether or nope. not there's a prosecution that takes place.
3: Mm-hmm. that the abuse is ongoing, unlike a stranger convenience or robbery, there's not ongoing dynamics. There's right. A- dynamics that have already instilled fear that are going to control your even willingness to reach out for help then there's the incident but then there's all this stuff that comes after and we so often I heard you say you know why did I go back to him it's really more how did he effectively re-engage you into the web because exactly calling incessantly, and then you think about survivors with children who are forced to share custody, how often those children get used. You mentioned that your mother's abuser also abused the children, and that's something that I think gets forgotten so much, and that this ongoing abuse that continues, whether you've reported it or not, and the bottom line is sometimes it's easier and safer for the survivor to be with that abuser than to not be with, because separation just takes it to a whole nother layer. And
2: again, a whole other level. And they hold on all your
1: worst case scenarios. You know, what's, Mm -hmm. what's the the least worst option?
2: Correct. The devil that I know is better than the the devil that I don't know, because all of this stuff, all of this territory is unknown. And not to mention, you've been told over and over again by your abuser that you're never going to survive without me.
3: You know, I've seen so many abusers, it's like, well, she's the breadwinner. Well, but he has set up the finances so that she is drained, doesn't have access, her droid, she can't, Uh there's all these little things that get turned back on the victim in the system for why did you do this rather than what has he done? So that you activate your survival instinct to, as Tracy said, choose between a bad choice and a worse choice which is absolutely usually death and so sometimes your best option is not to do it as the criminal the criminal system sees mm
2: mm-hmm. Mhm mhm absolutely
1: right. but you also both brought up the importance of having some support and i think one of the misunderstandings among um, many victims of domestic violence is the the belief that the, the local agency is really just a shelter. And right. you know, in your situation, there was no reason for you to go to a shelter. You had your own apartment. Yeah. But but the shelters do so much more. Mm-hmm. Most of the the good um, domestic violence organizations that I've met provide a legal advocate. They help you um, get that restraining order. They sit with you in court. They. Help oh, for you counseling. access health care. They get you mm-hmm. counseling. They Housing stabilization. Exactly. So right? there, there's so many other services beyond sleeping in a bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. In
2: a shelter. One of the things um, that is incredibly important to me um, in doing this work through Love Life Now is highlighting the work that um, domestic violence agencies do. And so one, every year, we pick 1D agency advocate for and so you know if we host a fundraiser or or an event you know proceeds some of that is going back to the dv agency who are on the front line do they're on the front line doing the work right and so this year that's transition house out of cambridge massachusetts and so we're so proud to 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 highlight the work because like you said they offer all of this the plethora of services that people don't know about and often the word shelter is daunting to people, right? For me, and and why why it's important to 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 highlight what they do? It's because again, when I was sitting in that ER for the very first time, seeking help, and the doctor said I can get you help. That to me meant going to also meant going to a shelter. And what I thought of shelter when I heard that is that it's a big open room with beds. With a bunch of women that i didn't know and i didn't want that again like you said i had my own apartment i can go back and be safe and i didn't realize it was the most dangerous i didn't realize that dv shelters are different from homeless shelters and i packed them in as one and the same i didn't understand that dv shelters only are how are are typically housed in a you know house setting right a very big house where you have your own room right you share the common areas maybe the kitchen and you know the, the 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 living room space or the play space and children have a play space okay they try to make it as home bound as possible right exactly. so that you can get a sense your pride is still intact when you enter you get a, a plethora of goods That sort of get you started, towels, sheets, linen. That's one of the things that we do as well is we host a bedding drive so we can replenish those items for the shelter that we're advocating for each year in October, right? Ask people to donate a new twin sheet and pillow, right? So these things, the little things that you don't think about when you've had to now flee for your life, the clothes on your back, they help with that. Um, and, and and that's why it's so important to point out, like you said, the services that they offer, because it's not a one, you know, it's just not, it's just not a, you go and you're there and it's just there. They're really trying to help you re-engage into, the, into society safely and on your own, right? So housing stabilization is a big deal. You, you're assigned an advocate, a case manager that will work with you to make sure that, you know, your, your three-month emergency stay isn't and leaving you ending up on the street or your six-month stay or however long an emergency stay is, stay is and the the particular shelter there, but they're everywhere. And so while we talk about, you know, that help can be daunting, help cannot be as helpful as it could be. Um, Sometimes with the criminal justice system, I do want to urge people to do reach out for help because when you do, that's when the light of the tunnel starts to open up. It's it's a little bit (laughs) crazy (laughs) in the beginning, but it gets better. Um, It's better than the hell you're dealing with now. So I urge people to just speak up.
3: And I think you've covered some of this, but can you talk to us, Laverne, about why specifically you started your wonderful organization? You've mentioned a few times the Love um, love, love, Life Now. Now I see the poster behind you. <laughs> yeah. when, when did you start that and why did you start it?
2: Yeah, so officially, thank you. Officially now, it's uh, 10 years this November, which I am so excited insanely grateful for, um, to be still doing this work. It, it, it's what drives me and, um, it really is passion work. And so I started it, uh, because the, the year prior, uh, to starting officially, I, I had been dared by a couple of, well, a few girlfriends of mine who would have, you know, girls night. And, you know, one of them was hosting a beauty pageant and she was going to host her own beauty pageant. She said, Laverne, you should take part. You know, you got the body for it. I said, no, that's not my thing. And, you know, they said, gosh, what are you afraid? We dare you. And that, that, that's all they had to say to me. You don't dare me. Okay. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do my best. And, you know, granted, I didn't take it as seriously as I could, I ended up winning. And so that was like, whoa. And then you had to go on to nationals in LA to, to compete there as well. And I ended up winning there there too. So these back-to-back pageant titles I have, I now have to pick a platform to to advocate for. And and DV was an easy choice. Domestic violence in short um, was an easy choice because of my history with the issue. And initially I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into. I really thought that I was just going to say domestic violence is wrong. I'm a survivor, stop and just use my voice as a platform. But when I started doing the work and understanding the dynamics, I took a a domestic violence 101 course um, to become an advocate at at a shelter that I wanted to volunteer at. And I initially was like, what the hell do I need to take a DV 101 course for? I I witnessed this thing. I've been in this thing. Like, what could you teach me about this issue? And I gotta tell you guys, when I walked out of that training, I was blown away. I mean, there was so there was so much information that I did not understand about this issue that was now I, made sense to me, like connecting the dots for me as a child with this and an adult survivor. And then even as it affected LGBTQ and men and teenagers, one in every three teens, one in every seven men, and one in every four women will experience this in their lifetime. And so in doing that, I'm like, there's no way I'm just doing this pageant. So when the pageant titles were up for the year and I'd created those initiatives, that's where the fire just was, it just was lit. And I'm like, I want to continue this work as much as I can. And people had said, maybe you should start a nonprofit next year. Love Life Now was formed. And so we've been doing, you know, the initiatives that I started out with. If I ever, I want to say to you, if I ever approached your car in traffic pounding you down to come to one of our walks <laughs> or to donate a twin sheet and pillow, I apologize.
3: <laughs> you know, Laverne, you bring up such a really interesting point, just I want to comment on real quick. I know we're getting short on time, but the the mistake I think so many people in the system make, and probably outside, is thinking that survivors are the expert on their on these dynamics. So mm-hmm. many- And here you experience it as a child as and as an adult and criminal, you know, law enforcement prosecutors, I think we tend to assume, well, you understand the dynamics. And I find one of the most powerful things is to educate survivors so they understand their own experience because it's confusing. Abusers are very manipulative and tactful. Absolutely. And really exploit your specific vulnerability. So, like books, mm-hmm. like Bancroft has a great book out. Is one of the first things I do to help educate survivors, so they know what they went through. Because we rely yes. on you to be an expert, and you are the witness. You are the victim, not the expert on the case. And so, well, you're the ex-
1: expert in your own experience, but it doesn't necessarily give you a structure in which to understand that experience. No. And that's part of the reason for um, the, the work that I've done is trying to take the structure that researchers really do know this work. They have really mm-hmm. examined it. They've been studying domestic violence for almost 50 years. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's been around a long time. Yeah. And um, we know a lot about it, but the general public doesn't know a lot about it. And no. until the general public does, it's just going to keep happening because you don't see it coming. And and once you're in it, it's very hard to see your way out of it without help. Mm -hmm. But, but on the other on the flip side of that, when somebody like you can come out and say, this is my experience, this is what it felt like, it resonates so much more with everybody. Um, You know, potential victims, victims, survivors, and just Anybody, average person on the
2: street who doesn't have insight, right? Yes, and so that's what you know. Again, to circle back to the book it's really uh, sort of getting people, again, if you've, even if you've never experienced this issue, sort of a backhand insight as to what this issue looks like. And I know there are a few of my friends um, in, uh, in, in, in the DV network who who have written books to that same end um, to get people uh, understanding. But again, not everybody's circumstances are the same. And it's my hope that when folks read this, that they, again, get the sense of what, again, as a Black woman, what my experience was, and so that they can generally understand not just w- what women go through, but what Black women go through as well. Um, right. in, in this, well and and every, again, so people can see themselves in me.
1: Every, every, hopefully. um one of the things that I found, I, I mean, I interviewed 35 uh, victims, more, closer to 40 victims of uh, intimate partner violence when I was doing finding Jen's voice. And uh-huh. when, when I spoke to the women, I mean, I spoke to 40 very unique, different women, everybody had uh-huh. their own um, past experiences Their, you know, everybody had their own personality that they brought into that experience. But when they described their abusers and their abusers behaviors, I felt like everybody was talking about the same person. Mm -hmm. Yes. That to me is a part of the conversation that we're going to have to continue to have. Absolutely. Who are these abusers and why?
2: Why why do they keep doing the same thing? And And why aren't we holding them more accountable? Why is the conversation always, we need to keep ourselves safe. Stop killing us, stop harming us. Why, why, why? Why is the shift in the spotlight not on them? Right? And well, um, that's that that's my hope.
3: Abusers have their own playbook. Mm-hmm, uh, true. They might look different in terms of what they're doing, but their goals are the same. And the ultimate goal at the end of it is to avoid accountability. Mm-hmm. So, so many victims get into situations where they are minimizing, excusing. You know, he's made them feel bad for reporting. Oh, I could cost me my job, and so they right. use all these tactics to employ accountability all the way from if you call the police, I'll kill you, all the way mm-hmm. from, you know we're going to lose health insurance if I go to prison. This prosecutor, yep. this, and so that is one of their tactics and main goals is to avoid that accountability. And survivors are walking around just going like, why don't you just tell them the truth? I think it's shocking to me how often survivors are shocked that abuser mm-hmm. isn't pleading to a case. They're like, well, he did it. And I'm like, well, but that does, like he's that he's not accepting accountability like right. a lot of decent humans would. He's trying right. to avoid it. And I think that's always kind of a layer of like, how can he say he didn't do it? Look at the picture of my black eye. Yep think that comes as a shock that so many things abusers do set that avoidance of accountability up even often before you call the police.
2: Yes. And way before, right? So they're telling you from, from jump. I mean, even with my first apology, my gosh, I would, the blame was being deflected on me in part, right? You made me do this because I love you so much. If you had only checked in with me, this wouldn't have happened, but you know what? Going forward, never again, I won't do it. Right. <laughs> My God, you're hearing that over and over and over. You made me do this. And if people, you didn't wear that dress, this wouldn't have happened. For
3: parents of teens um and teens in general, you brought that up. I think a good thing to keep in mind is a lot of the things you described with your um with the abuser was these like upset that you didn't call or why are you doing this? And I think if you if you if you take that five, six years earlier, like into the teenage years recognizing control as controlling behaviors in teens, because I think we tend to excuse it like, oh, he must really like you. And I think
2: mm-hmm. maybe- great point. Yeah. Um, 90% of the time, Kelsey, when we present DV workshops at high schools, middle schools, even colleges, 90% of the time, at least two to three girls are coming up to me and saying me too. And they didn't realize it was abuse. They thought this is the way things are supposed to go. Well, he really just, really just wants to make sure I'm safe. No, he is trying to make sure you say where you are and make sure that's what it is at any given point in time. And that's wrong. He should trust you. At the heart of a healthy relationship is trust. And if he, if you say you're going to go hang out with your friends, five, six, seven, eight calls while you're there is not needed, right. okay? And so when I break it down to them after, you know, post, you know, discussion and whatnot, and we're talking in private, they're like, oh my God, wow. Okay. Or some okay. of them might not, they'd be like, no, nah, uh, you're overreacting. Like, you know, that's not just, that's just not what it is. Because you know what? That's what they believe. Their peers, if, even if they've never seen this at home, their peers are in these types of relationships and they think it's cool. So I want to have a guy like Jake because he treats, at least, you know, he, he, he buys her all the cool stuff and, you know, he drives a nice car. So what if she, you know, he tells her, you got to check in five, six, seven, eight times. They believe that's cool. Right, Right? And then some of them, like I said, are witnessing it at home and believing boys as well. So we have to, we cannot excuse boys because boys are seeing this type of behavior at home and believing this is how you treat women from very young. Okay. This is how you get power and respect. This is how you get a, a girl. To, to, to listen to you, right? Um, and so they're bringing these relationships and these attitudes and behaviors into schools. And these relationships, again, are repeating themselves from very early on. This isn't a, oh, a, a grown woman thing. This isn't a black woman thing. This isn't a, oh, by the time you get to 22 or 23, that's when you kind of start experiencing this. This is 13, 14, 15 years old. Your babies are going through this and they are not going to tell you because they know that you don't like Jake. So I'm not even gonna share that with you. So when you show see them coming and showing up in are wearing a turtleneck in summer and it's hot outside, question that. If 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 they're now reclusive, they're not wanting to go out to you w- with you to family events all of a sudden, question that. If they're you know they just got in the house from hanging out with Jake and you know they're calling them five six seven eight times, question that. Question question question. And if you and and and, and but I urge you. Don't confront them in a judgmental way because that'll make them back and go back to Jake real quick. What you want to do is have a civilized conversation about I am here, letting them know I am here. If you ever need to talk, I am here. Listen, if you don't want to talk to me, Here's this resource, loversrespect.org I love to point that resource out because it's a great teen dating violence website. No, Go okay. on here when you have a minute. I'd like you, because I'm, I'm a little concerned, I'm very concerned as a matter of fact, about what's happening in your relationship. If you don't want to talk to me, check this out when you have a minute. That's all I'm asking you, honey. Look at this, make sure you send them to the link that shows them the signs. And maybe it's sometimes it takes, even for grown ups when they see things in black and white, they're like, he, che- he calls me all the time. He wants to um, control the way I dress. He, he, he texts, you know, whatever, all the, all the red flags are being checked off. It's like, oh my God, that's me. Sometimes it takes seeing it in black and white for it to jump out at you. If that's the case, maybe that's what you need to do. But don't, 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 I'm not going to let you see Jake again. Guess what they're going to sneak out at the house and then we'll see Jake. That's what you You, you never want to do that. Even with grownups, you you find your friend or family member going through it.
1: A very powerful message, Laverne, and and I think that um, parents need to hear that I, I, I like my mind is going I want to take that whole little snippet and put it right I just did a teen dating violence webinar I want to mm. add that to it because parents need to hear how do I handle it and and, and it's hard it's hard to it's deal hard. with teenagers because you know they, they want to shut you out and it's hard to have that conversation.
2: But, but um, gotta stay on really it. powerful
1: message. It. We could talk to you all day. <laughs> and um, I think that um, hope is is about to give me the, uh, the come on, wrap it up there. Chat. <laughs> so we're gonna wrap it up. Um, I encourage um, everybody to look out for Laverne's um, book. Which will be released in June.
2: Yeah, you can find it at www. It's at, it's on pre order status right now, so you can pre order it from all now. It is at www. Again, thelegacyheleftme.com. Com.
1: And we'll make sure that we have a link to that pre order form on um, uh, Voices for Change, uh, as well as the Voices for Change Radio.com site. So. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Kelsey, for joining us once again. Your insights are always so valuable. Thank you. Thanks, Hope. Appreciate you. Look, Thank you all. Thank
0: you all. This. Yes, this has been great, Laverne Gordon. You are just um, a gift to us all. You're your words, your passion, and you know, to, to end domestic violence. That is the goal. That is everyone's That's goal it. here on the screen today. Kelsey McKay as a prosecutor in Austin, Texas with Respond Against Violence is her nonprofit, the fantastic Tracy Schott, who is telling stories. And its I am proud to, uh, produce and promote all the work that you are all doing. So you are listening to voicesforchangeradio.com every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time on Incandescent Radio, my Facebook page. Hope Cats Gibbs. I thank you all. And uh, here's to putting an end to this horrible crime. We'll speak to you all next Tuesday. Thanks.